Welcome to the Dear Katie podcast. My name is Katie Kessner, and today we are so pleased to welcome Lauren Duke. Um, Lauren, welcome to our podcast. And if you don't mind, share a little bit about your life and your journey um, to this platform. Yeah, um, thanks for having me. My name is Lauren Duke, and I currently live in Ojai, California. I'm from Northern California, up um, by the San Francisco Bay Area in a little town called Pacifica, California, which is actually the whole front um, end of my book is set on the coast side up there outside of San Francisco. I currently own a education platform, yoga studio uh, in, we call it a, a community care platform, like a community center in Encinitas, California. And um, we do a lot of Nervous system education, that's basically my job at this point in my life is a nervous system educator um, and a trauma educator. And um, I do that in a variety of different ways through writing, through um, nervous system education via my yoga classes. Um, yeah, and I just have a, a book that just came out on J January 11th. So that was two weeks ago, basically yesterday. Thank you so much, Lauren. Yeah, that's a great summary of where 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 you are now and where you started. And I'm sure there's a lot in between um, that has fallen into the pages of your book. So I know we're going to talk about the book later, but you know, I think on our podcast we have so many um, listeners who are survivors themselves and are seeking kind of. What's your story that brings you to a microphone on this particular podcast as a survivor and how do you identify as such and you know what what happened in your world to create this um, you know unfortunately but powerful way to use trauma to then educate and help others who have been also victimized so t tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, you know, I grew up, like I said earlier, in Northern California and um, my low working class family, my no one was really educated. My mom was a, a single mother and she was mostly gone. So I didn't really have, um, you know, great mentors or uh, attuned caregivers. And um, there was a always kind of like a slew of men coming and going and I saw a lot of um, domestic violence in my house and uh, my father was in prison. You know, I kind of check all the boxes of, of someone who had a, a very traumatic childhood. And, you know, the interesting thing is that um, all of those events really shaped my own belief system about myself very, very early on. Um, and because of that, I had a lot of self-shame. I wasn't really your like ideal girl. Um, I was searching for love and attention in all the wrong places. And I ended up in a very precarious situation as I had done many times before. And that was, um, you know, that was my, my experience. And I write about it in my book. It's about, I don't know, nine pages in the backseat of a car when, um, I was 12 years old and, I lost my virginity unwillingly. Um, but yeah, I think that the for me, it was really about what led up to that, that even put me in that position in the first place. And it was, you know, my feelings about myself and, and, and not being taken care of and not being protected and not feeling like I was worth being protected. And it really took me 
many, many years, um, you know, of the work that I do now and also going through trauma therapy to basically have someone break down for me what happened and tell me that it was not okay. Because for many years, I blamed myself. And that self-blame and that self-shame really ended up um, perpetuating a lot of patterns and behaviors that I had after that time because I was 12 years old. You know, that's really... Right, right. So let's... Yeah, before we talk more about how it impacted you, I'd like to speak a little bit with you about being a 12-year-old. Um, and, and being in that moment, of course, now you can go back and hindsight's perfect. And we can think about what could have, would have, should have happened to get you not in the backseat of that car. But for so many of our survivors listening and those trying to support survivors who experienced very early child, child, you were child, um, abuse sexually, um, you know, what so let, let's do a couple things for you know there's different decades and points in time and how women were thought to be bad girls good girls you know we're we're coming and sometimes it was so shameful you know we had one survivor talk about being assaulted um you know 50 years ago <laughs> so you know let's let's think about what where are we in time first what what decade are we in yes so it was in the 90s. And also, yeah, I was born in 1987. So it was 95, <laughs> middle of the 90s. Yeah, 95. So, so for context, I think, you know, 95 is right at the very beginning of the conversation, because I was on the cover of Time then 91. And people were just in those first parts of the 90s starting to come forward and even think that you know, it wasn't always a stranger grabbing you out of the dark. <laughs> so for for that, that's important. And then secondly, I think, you know, the idea of, of what it meant to be a teenage girl, at least in your mind, how did you understand that as if, as if you recall when you were 11, 12, 13, where were you kind of in that, become, you know, child turning into teenager? Yeah. Um, well, I was definitely really influenced by media because I didn't have anyone around, you know, so and because of that, I was allowed to just kind of watch as much violent Hollywood, you know, depictions of violence as I as I possibly could. And and um, and also because I was witnessing, you know, so much violence just in my own house and in my own world, um, you know, violence uh, uh, against women. Yes. Um, also, my mother was incredibly violent. Um, you know, it all just seemed like it was very normal. Violent toward your mom. Just to clarify, your mother was violent toward herself, towards you, toward men in the house, toward all of it, all, all of it. And physically. Yeah. So yeah, like, and always got it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah. you know, not to pry, but sometimes people like to say, well, can our people violent? Was she using substances when she was violent or she could do everything stone cold so sober and be just as violent? Both. <laughs> so my mother had a lot of unresolved. Yeah. My, my mother had a lot of unresolved trauma and, you know, I think her, she was probably dealing with, um, actually I know she was dealing with her own unresolved sexual violence 
And, um, you know, it, it, and she was an alcoholic and I'm not really sure there was other substances that she was abusing because I remember pulling them out of her purse myself. Um, but you know, there was a lot of alcohol involved and, and, you know, I'm pretty sure that she was kind of always, always using something, but there was, I just was surrounded by violence, like so much to the point where, where it was normal, you know, it was normal. I was seeing it on TV. I was seeing it, um, you know, not just in my family, but almost like in my, in my culture, you know, in the people that I was hanging out around my babysitters, their parents. I mean, it was, it was around and no one was protected. That's significant, Lauren, because I think there's also survivors who share and say, I thought it was normal, but I didn't have any context because I didn't have any friends or I didn't have anyone else around me really. You know, they were kind of isolated and your experience was immersive, really, in every direction. Um, where, you know, you, you said, I think you said, I didn't even know I was losing my virginity exactly am I getting that correctly or? Um, so I was 12 years old. My mom started hanging out with this woman. Uh, this woman was a local bartender and her children were the town drug dealers. And I'm pretty sure that my mom had to have known that these girls were drug dealers. They also ended up becoming my babysitters. And so when my mom would go out partying with this other woman, she would leave us at this house where, you know, these people were selling not just weed, but cocaine and crystal meth. And, um, and in the situation that I was in, I was in full survival mode. It's like, I was put there at the hands of my caregivers and I didn't feel, I didn't know anything different. I didn't feel like I could go call someone. I didn't think that I had a, a safety support system to run to. And so when you are 12 years old, if you can't beat them, you join them. And that's what I did. So I was um, hanging out with those girls. I was drinking. I was doing drugs. And um, I one night we drove down to Santa Cruz, and there was um, another a guy there that hung out with those girls as well. And maybe he was twenty or twenty one years old at the time. And um, they went in to I recall them getting more drugs, and they left me in the back seat with the guy. And during that experience, I, I had never even kissed anyone. This was my first kiss. This was, but I also felt like I was really succumbing to peer pressure. Like I was like, Ooh, like I was in a traumatized state. I was in full survival mode. And I, at that point, no one had taught me how to say no. No one had ever spoken to me about um, sex or consent or pleasure or like, I knew nothing. And so he started, um, you know, moving in on me and I told him no. And he said, we're already there. This is already happening. Um, you'll feel better once it's happened. And I went physiologically, I collapsed. And so this is what I study and educate people on now, but I basically collapsed into my body. It's, um, a protection mechanism that happens in your body. It's called dorsal vagal immobilization. Like I could feel what was happening on the outside, but on the inside, I went into freeze response and I just 
let it happen because I didn't feel like I could fight. I had already said no. I had already tried to assert a boundary. The boundary wasn't respected. I didn't feel like I had um, safety or support. I didn't think that I could call someone. I didn't have a phone. And so even though I said no, it happened anyway. And, and it was, so yeah, so that's kind of a little more details of the story. Thank you. That was, that was super generous and helpful. Thank you, Lauren. And I especially I know that our listeners are going to appreciate understanding that, that freeze response. Um, can you say the term one more time in case some of them didn't catch it and want to look it up? Yeah. So um, your body is so smart that it's almost like uh, when an animal, you know, feigns dead, the animal isn't consciously doing it. The nervous system essentially shuts the body down so that way it protects the animal from what could possibly be its imminent death. And that is called um, dorsal vagal immobilization or a deep freeze response. And um, thank you. You're welcome. And that is also, I mean, trauma is actually a dysfunction of the nervous system. And so that's kind of my piece now is to share with people how, you know, what trauma actually it is and and kind of demystify it, you know, and how experiences like the one that I went through can really impact your nervous system. My next question then is going to where we were talking about apologizing and feeling shame. And what I think is so fascinating too, Lauren, is you did find your way to the, the healing stage and embrace it full on. And I think so many survivors don't get there. We just sit there in our, our, our hurt and either hurt, continue to hurt ourselves, continue to stay in unhealthy relationships, continue to, you know, you know, not eat, continue to overdrink, continue to like, just, just hurt, <laughs> um, hurt ourselves ongoingly. And um, maybe sharing a little bit about how did you come to see a way out of that phase, especially because the layers are so many for you. And, you know, it wasn't like, you know what I mean? There, there's, there was a lot of not normal. Yeah. It was normal for me. It's not normal for you, but <laughs> it was normal for you. But I, but I no, actually, you know, I kind of think a lot of us have really complicated, dark, Har harmful experiences, and very few of us actually have the courage to, to get there to talk about them in public, um, much less even have a, an internal conversation. You know, we a lot of times we don't even we shut down our own internal clock. <laughs> I came from that culture. You know, I came from like my mother's a baby boomer, and I was raised with a very particular narrative, and part of that narrative is like don't air your dirty laundry out in public. If you put yourself in that situation, you probably deserved it. And that was the narrative after that assault on me. And I believe that, you know, for, for a really long time. And, and, um, it really wasn't until, um, like, I mean, that's part of why I wrote the book too, is to share, you know, really, really share that. But I, I come from a culture where, where it's not okay to tell the things that have happened to you. But I just feel like you, you don't connect to the deepest parts of humanity when you hide the grit, you know, when you hide the, the reality of, of, of what it means to be a human. It's like, 
people are suffering. We're having traumatic experiences. And when you're just kind of sharing, and I think now we're just so assaulted by all the toxic positivity on social media, it's like it, it, um, you know, it's, it's, it's diminishing to our real human experience. And, and that is also why, like, I, my, my activism, part of my activism was writing this book, you know, was telling the truth. And it's really interesting because I have had a lot of really interesting feedback. Like, why are you sharing that? And also I've gotten so many messages from people. I would say that the chapter where I do talk about the sexual assault, I have had more feedback on and more people reach out to me than any other piece of that book. And it's just an eight page. Sorry. It's very, it's hard. It has been very empowering to share that experience. And I'm so glad because I struggled with writing about it. And I'm so happy that I did in such graphic detail. I'm not sure if you guys read the book, um, but I literally replayed it and went through and broke it down and deconstructed it and wrote it out. And it was so incredibly healing for me. And it has been for so many people because I think... Again, so many people don't want to talk about this and we are coming from that, even though I think it's less now, you know, post Me Too movement, but there still is a lot of silence. There's still like, we want to just not ruffle feathers. We want to just like float downstream and go with the flow. And, and, and by writing about this, like that, that is my activism. And that is how I am showing other people that, um, you know, that they too can talk about it and they too can do the work to heal it and that it is not okay. Mm-hmm. So powerful. And, you know, I think we've talked on our, our podcast about journaling and writing, you know, little bits and pieces every day as you can stomach them. And you took the whole thing and how, how long did it take to write the whole book? <laughs> um, the book took me seven years, seven years. Because the thing is, is when you're, when you are um, kind of dissecting and deconstructing and, and parsing out a traumatic history, the way that I was in this memoir, and don't get me wrong, my book is a book of hope and resilience, but first I had to get through the muck, you know, um, to be able to get to the other side of it. Um, But you can't rush the healing process. It's like, in a sense, you, when you are going back through things, when you are writing things down, when you are reliving things in your mind, it has a really intense impact on your nervous system. And in, in so many ways, it can basically trigger you to relive the, ex- you're basically re-traumatizing yourself. So in a way, doing what I did was a, um, a, like exposure therapy in a way. And every time I went through a piece, I was also working with lots of different like healers. I was going through therapy at this time as well. And, you know, I would work through it in my, you know, in my writing, and then I would take it into the therapy room and then I would work on it with a therapist to help them, um, them to help kind of reframe and reorganize and integrate um, my story. So a lot of people, it's like they want to get through things fast and they just want to feel better, but there's no timeline. Like, I feel like that's kind of our biggest um, mistake in terms of our healing journey is that we really want to expedite the timeline. And that is all like self, well, I guess it's like, because we just want to feel better. I understand that that's so primal and, um, you know, inherent, but like things just take the time they take. And that chapter 
took a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that chapter of my life took a really long time because it actually was super harmful for me. You know, what that experience in the backseat of the car did for me for the next, um, you know, 10 or 20 years was, was really harmful. Mm -hmm. My reputation and my family's reputation, I mean, you know how it goes when you're young. It was rampant and people talked about me and they talked about my family. Everyone knew what was going on, but no one really wanted to intervene. And I would say that's very different now. I just think in the mid nineties, we were still kind of living in that era of like, don't get in other people's business, you know, don't cause drama and just go with the flow. But one of the things that really shifted for me is, um, when I was, um, 15 or 16, I got into a relationship with a boy who had uh, a very kind of like healthy or quote unquote normal family. And his mother was a psychologist and his father was a lawyer and they sat down and had dinner every single night and they kind of, um, you know, debriefed on their days and they spoke to each other and they didn't abuse each other. And that was really my first, like having that access to people who cared about me um, and who shared, like who made me see that I mattered because after that experience, my environment was also reinforcing that I wasn't good enough and people were mean. And, um, you know, it has a, a mental and physiological and psychological impact, but being in that house with that particular boyfriend and um, his, you know, pretty normal family environment, like it gave me hope it, it, that, that dichotomy and that juxtaposition of like where I come from versus seeing what is possible, I think was a huge pivot point for me. Um, because I saw what was possible and that's really when I stopped using, like, I remember my senior prom, everyone was using drugs. And at that point in my life, like I had love, you know, deep caring love by this person. And this family. And I didn't need to do anything to numb my experience. Like I didn't have to tolerate my reality. And I remember my senior prom, everyone was doing drugs and I was just totally sober. And so I know that, um, that the experience of being exposed to, you know, people with healthy belief systems, people who are kind, uh, people with good boundaries, I know that that really helped kind of change and shift the trajectory of my life. That kind of exposure, like community is everything. And then, yeah, I totally, I, I'm, I'm thinking how fortunate that was Lauren, especially when it was when you were 15 to 18. And then um, did, did you have a relapse after that relationship or, you know, cause you still hadn't really dug in too much. Uh, but you at least had another perspective. Yeah, I did. And that was great. Yeah, that that was great. Um, he went, so after high school, that boyfriend went off to college and we broke up. And so I was kind of back in the, um, you know, searching for love in all the wrong places because I wasn't getting it from my caregivers. And, um, but this is really when, after high school is when I really recognized that actually it was kind of like during this time, um, that I started to reflect on that some things weren't right for me. And 
that I, I needed some support and help, but I didn't really know how to get it. And no one had ever, like at this point, you know, therapy was um, like, no one wanted to shrink, you know, again, it's still like the nineties, mid nineties, getting help, asking for help was still kind of like taboo at that point. Um, but I, I took a yoga class in my senior year of high school. I took a yoga class and that was really the first moment I could have never articulated what was happening um, in, you know, for me physiologically in that yoga class. I just thought some like mystical creature being was coming down and like, you know, wrapping me in, in, in God or something. But it was really like the first um, calm moments of my life. And I got very curious. And so that also was like, I don't know, who knows? Is it, is it fate? Is it arbitrary? Is it is it destiny? But I landed in a yoga class and um, I got really curious about what it was that that was making me feel okay for the first time. And so that was really my um, my entryway into another world, you know, the boyfriend and then taking a yoga class. And I followed the thread of yoga for many years. I mean, I'm now, I now own, I've owned five different yoga studios and, and have been teaching yoga since I was um, 19 or 20 years old and I'm 39. And that speaks to a, a mindful practice of self-care um, and the way I, I hear it. And you incorporated that as a commitment to yourself. You know, that's, I, I think that's part of maybe the steps you took that you met a stumbling then you continued, you stuck with it. Yes. That's the thing is like, you know, the reason why we, we encourage people to practice daily, it's not about, um, well, at least for me, it's not about making money and, you know, and, and upping my attendance in my classes by getting everyone to come every day. It's about getting people to do things over and over and over again until they become it. And until they can change their, like that, that state that you can create in a yoga class or by the end of a yoga class, by doing all these very deliberate, specific movements, it creates a very specific nervous system state. And the more you do it, whether it's a breathing practice, a meditation practice, a, a posture practice, the more you realize that it is possible to recreate that state inside your own body. It's almost like you, um, you fake it till you become it. And that is really what happened for me in the yoga practice. Like I kept going back every single day because I knew how it made me feel. I didn't understand why it made me feel like that. I, but it made me feel good. And so I kept going back to it and, and, you know, yoga is really fundamentally, it's about self inquiry. It's about, um, self-confrontation and self-reflection. And, you know, through my yoga practice, I really started to think about, because at this point, like I said, I hadn't been in therapy or anything, but it, but through my yoga practice and through, you know, those moments of, of coherence where I wasn't disembodied, I wasn't disorganized, but I was actually all online, all of my parts together. I really got to reflect on the things that had happened in my life and acknowledge them and, and really start to process them, you know, and, and seek support for them. But before that I was in, so I, I, when you're in a state of survival mode, you're not thinking really about getting better or getting help. You're just thinking about getting through the day. 
And, and I was in that place for a really long time and, and finding, you know, a community and finding, um, you know, a practice that was really also, I mean, it was just such a game changer for me. And it really made me look at all the things that happened in my life and, and seek help, seek support. The fascinating thing about yoga is, and I could talk about yoga from a million different angles, but you know, one angle is like when you're in a traumatized state, when you have a, a dysfunctional nervous system, when you're in a state of chaos and you're, you know, your emotions are displaced and you have disorganized psychology, it's really hard to be still because when you are still, all the things that are uncomfortable start to bubble up to the surface and it's intolerable. Think about doing um, like a big pose, like a warrior, right? There are so many things happening in a warrior pose. Um, so many things to think about. So many things going on physiologically, biomechanically. There's alignment. Like we're just a bundle of nerves. So then the teacher is like, okay, now you need to do this. And now you need to do this. And then you also need to breathe. And then how about look off, you know, the tip of your nose or the tip of your fingers. And next thing you know, you literally cannot focus on anything else except for the present moment experience. And that is what ends up becoming so transformational for people because for someone like me or for a lot of people who experience, um, you know, chronic and dramatic PTSD symptoms, you're often back. You know, your, your nervous system is get, just getting triggered by things over and over again, basically trying to get you um, to protect you from going whatever was, you know, whatever injured you in the first place. And so there's a lot of like living behind you and trying to avoid all of those triggers. But when you take a yoga class, like it is so physical that you literally cannot focus on anything else except for what you're doing. And um, again, I think that is what's so powerful for people. And, and not just that, the things that happen to us, they happen first and foremost to our body. We process them psychologically, of course, because we are a psychological being, we are a physical being, we are a spiritual being, but they're happening to our body. And so when you're doing, um, a lot of the yoga poses are like never ever in life would you ever do any of those things. You know, there's, you access all these different places in your body that you normally don't have access to when you're just, I don't know, say like walking down the street. So you're really stirring your pot, which means you're basically giving yourself like you're poking at different parts of you that 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 haven't been circulated for a while. And so what can happen for people is it triggers memories, you know, um, uh, disorganized memories or memories just kind of like hanging out in the body that are that are. Um, uh, compartmentalized and disintegrated. And so that's why a lot of people ultimately end up having these like revelatory visions and memories during yoga practices, because there's nothing really else that you can do that is going to give you the sort of contact with your body that yoga does. So there's so many things happening, um, in a yoga practice that I think are incredibly healing. And I'm so glad because when I was young and I just thought it was so mystical and I was really obsessed with all the philosophy and I loved all the, you know, the Hindu deities and, and, and the stories, um, you know, from the Bhagavad Gita I was really wrapped up in tradition. But ultimately when I was struggling with like really bad PTSD symptoms and I didn't understand what it was, none of those stories helped me. What helped me is understanding how my body works and how 
those really traumatic moments of my life basically programmed my physiology to react and respond in certain ways. And that I had to be the person that was going to decondition my dysregulated nervous system. That was hard. That was a very hard reality because I just wanted to go to a therapist and take a pill and have it all go away. And that is what I've learned in my, all my trauma studies over the last several years. Like it takes years and years to create the reactions and the kind of neurophysiological responses in our system. And we program ourselves and we condition ourselves to respond to things in a certain way. And to, to consciously choose a new way, even though your primal body wants to do something else, that's some of the hardest work you can ever do. But it is also the most healing and transformative work I think anyone can do. I, I think sometimes the good, the amazing goodness that can come out of finding this healing is, wow, I am so joyful. As, and you said playful, but joyful because I know what it is to sit in darkness. And I know, I know that part too. And I think sometimes when we encounter people who have never sat, like you said, a man, you know, male instructor, he couldn't even understand our bodies because he doesn't have our body. But I, I think similarly, there are people who can't understand very well, as we've talked about throughout our interview, they don't understand because they've never felt that way. And so it, then they meet our, our narrative, our story, our experience with disbelief. Um, you know, so I feel like there's, there are two, you said, I know you said people, all people have been trauma through trauma of some sort, but I, I think there's degrees and types. And when we parse out, when we parse out those types, I think, you know, we find that the most empathy and support with those, not, not with the exact data, data set that we have, each of us, but with ones that have resonance at some points along that pain journey. And, and then of course, with that healing journey. So I hope that, you know, one of the things the podcast does is offers all these different modalities, as we might say in the yoga, since we're using yoga terms, you know, um, ways to find that connectivity and also ways to reject those who aren't, aren't helping <laughs> and maybe even, hurting um, because they simply lack the entire empathy bone. Um, and, you know, and I think sometimes they're good people, they're good people, but because they've never even come close to understanding, I think it's sometimes hard for us to say even good people can be hurtful sometimes yeah. just because they don't understand. Well, that's why I think it's so important for people like us to be sharing our stories, you know, um, that right there, because it allows us to see something from another perspective, because we only know, like, what we know is only relative, really, to what we've been through, you know, and I had someone the other day, a good friend, and, and um, she's been reading my book, and, and she couldn't get past the chapter of me in the back seat. She's like, I just can't read about someone else's suffering. And she had told me that her mother um, had been sexually assaulted and her mother also wrote a book about it and, um, and that she couldn't read her mother's book. And afterwards, 
I guess the people, she's my hairdresser. And I guess the people in the beauty salon know her. They were like her coworkers. And I, afterwards, I guess after I left, they were kind of telling her that she's just been living in this fairy tale bubble for a really long time. And it's actually preventing her from like connecting with people and having real, you know, human connections with people because she doesn't, she doesn't need to put herself in their shoes, but it's like, just to be able to hold the space for someone is like, I feel like I can hold because I've been through so much crazy, you know, SHIT in my life. I, anyone can give me anything and I can hold it. Like I can hold it in a conversation. I can hold it. And that's all we really want, you know, because sometimes the experiences we go through, they make us feel so unworthy and so alone and the antidote to that and the healing is really connections with other people. And that's why it's so important to, regardless of what the story is, to share the story. Well, you've given us so much, Lauren. Uh, we cannot thank you for coming to your microphone on the podcast. And we'll, we'll close out and make sure that our listeners know um, how to access your book and how to access um, connecting with you. And thank you for allowing that as well. So, uh, yeah, thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. Of course. So uh, thank, thanks to all our listeners for joining the Dear Katie podcast. Um, please always take good care of yourselves. Uh, and um, last but not least, this Dear Katie podcast is all about together we stand and shatter the silence and, and work very hard to end the violence. Mm -hmm. So thank you and looking forward to our next episode. Thank you. We're grateful to all of you who have joined us for this episode of Dear Katie's Survivor Stories. If you need support but don't know where to find it, please visit takebackthenight.org for a list of resources. You can reach out to our legal support hotline, uh, connect with other survivors through our social media, and you can also help other survivors simply by subscribing to our podcast and sharing it far and wide. Please consider posting it on your own social media with some remark about what it's done to help you and make sure to follow us on ours. Dear Katie is completely produced by all of us, an amazing group of volunteers. We care so much about this cause. The paycheck isn't what we're doing for. Thank you to all of our volunteers. Thank you to our listeners and thank you for our survivors, wherever you are, for being present and joining us in this process of growth, strength, and healing. Always remember self-care is essential to healing and to thriving.